Good evening. My name is Craig Barnes. It's my honor to welcome all of you to this evening as we honor the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Prathia Hall, who held three degrees from Princeton Theological Seminary and had a remarkable ministry committed to faith and scholarship and justice. The seminary has recently received the papers of Dr. Hall. Once the papers have been fully processed into the library's special collections and archives, they'll be available for research purposes. A small exhibit about the papers is currently on display in the library's concourse. At the conclusion of this lecture, we'll hold a reception at the library, and I hope you'll take a few moments to look at the display. We are privileged tonight to have Bishop Yvette Flunder of the City of Refuge United Church of Christ in Oakland, California to deliver this important lecture. Dr. Carrie Day, our Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African American Religion, will introduce Bishop Flunder in a few moments. Finally, I'd like to thank one of our students, Jade Lee. Jay came to me earlier this year with a vision to honor Dr. Hall's legacy with this lecture. Jade, your enthusiasm and leadership for this project has been inspiring. Now I'll invite you forward to share a few words about the legacy of Dr. Prathia Hall. a black girl, forced to sit at the back of the train behind the engine. She was a PK, a preacher's kid, who believed service to Christ was service to people. She was a college activist whose involvement in desegregation demonstrations in Maryland as a Temple University junior did not stop short of jail time. She was a freedom fighter on the front lines <laughs> who had the courage to not only campaign for voters registration in Southern Georgia's most racially violent territory, but she was also so bold, so fearless as to sit with its oppressed folk on their porches, hearing their stories, listening to their truths. She was a woman called by God who, like many of us here today, ran from her call for a while. <laughs> Unable to accept that she could be both a woman and a minister. Yet, she was a trailblazing clergywoman, one of the first women ordained by the American Baptist Association, the first woman to be accepted into the Baptist Minister Conference of Philadelphia and vicinity, and she became the first woman pastor of Mount Sharon Baptist Church in Philadelphia. She was a prophetic theologian, a liberationist, a womanist, who was motivated by what she coined as the freedom faith of her enslaved ancestors. To her students, she was affectionately the real itinerant. To congregations, she was a revivalist who took her words of justice across the nation. She was the one who spoke that famous phrase first, the hidden figure who prayed, I have a dream, repeatedly after another church had been consumed by fire. She was learned Yes, but she was real. The master of divinity, master of theology, and doctor of philosophy degrees that she earned here at Princeton Theological Seminary did not render her out of touch, I know, <laughs> out of touch with the people or the struggle. Her experiences of fighting the good fight Witnessing churches burned down in Albany, Georgia, being thrown in jail multiple times for just demanding civil rights, being shot 
in Terrell County, Georgia, did not render her intimidated, inactive, and ineffective. Her respected reputation as a powerful preacher, her Martin Luther King Jr. Chair in Social Ethics at Boston University, her legacy as a leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, her, her features on media outlets, her achievements, all of her achievements did not render her inaccessible. Rather, she offered herself in service to the next generation of leaders and was devoted to mentoring those women and men who followed a similar path. The late Reverend Dr. Prathia Hall, she wore her intersections well. So it is fitting today that this historic lecture, the first lecture created here at Princeton Theological Seminary to honor an African-American woman would be named on her behalf. Amen. She once said, I stood in the authenticity of my being. Black, preacher, Baptist, woman. For the same God who made me a preacher made me a woman and I am convinced that God was not confused on either account. <laughs> well, we are here today because we believe that God wasn't confused either, that her life and her legacy continue to serve the next generation as a source of knowledge an experience beneficial for all of us today and for the us of tomorrow. The Reverend Dr. Prathia Hall, she wore her intersections well. Good evening. Thank you, Jade, again for your prophetic vision. We would not be here this evening had you not gone to the administration and to various faculty members to talk about the need for this within our community and as a gift to the broader Princeton community. So we thank you again. So I am elated to introduce uh, our first lecturer, of the Prathia Hall lecture on tonight. I must admit, I am a bit biased. Not only do I consider her a mentor, but she is a woman after my own heart coming out of the church of God in Christ, Kojic. <laughs> so I'd like to introduce on this evening, Reverend Dr. Yvette Flunder. Many of us know her as Bishop Flunder, a San Francisco native, she has served her call through prophetic action and ministry for justice for over 30 years. This call that she has is to blend proclamation, worship, service, and advocacy on behalf of those most marginalized in church and society. And this call has led her to the founding of the City of Refuge United Church of Christ in 1991. In 2003, Bishop Flunder was consecrated presiding bishop of the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, known as TFAM, a multi-denominational coalition of over 100 primarily African-American Christian leader laity and churches. Bishop Flunder is on the board of Star King School for the Ministry and Demos, a senior fellow at Auburn Seminary, and has taught at many theological schools. She is a graduate of the Certificate of Ministry and Master of Arts program at PSR and received her Doctor of Ministry from San Francisco Theological Seminary. And I also note that uh, she was uh, discussing over dinner this evening with students that initially she was actually denied um, uh, what her call would be that is studying for the pastorate at San Francisco Theological Seminary only to wrap back around uh, some decades later, later to get her degree. So she is a trailblazer in many different ways. She is also an award-winning gospel music artist. Yes, many of us know she sang with the Hawkins, <laughs> folks. 
And she's the author of Where the Edge Gathers, a theology of homiletic and radical inclusion. In her travels, she has embraced and blessed the dispossessed, held close to her heart those who are perceived as thrown away souls, those who are seen as spiritually damaged, the demonized, and she has led them through her prayers, her preaching, her presence, and her authentic, dedicated, holy calling. If you have not heard Bishop Flunder lecture or preach, you are in for a treat on tonight. So will you join me in welcoming Bishop Yvette Flunder? Thank you so much. Well now, what a joy and privilege it is to be here with family and kin. I've had a chance to share with many of you in several different iterations today. And we have had church and almost church and just about everywhere that we have been. Over brownies and salmon and blueberries and, and sweet tea, it's been a great day. So many, many thank yous I would like to give today, but I'm gonna be conscious of the time as my baby niece who is here, Bella, who is Dr. Callahan's daughter, has made it clear that she does not wanna be here all night. <laughs> I do greet you from the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries in all of its settings and from City of Refuge United Church of Christ. I'm so thankful for 34 now plus years of pastoral ministry, and it went by fast. But it is my heart, it is my joy. I'm also very grateful to stand in both the aura and the spiritual aroma of Dr. Prathia Hall. What an incredible honor that is for me to be that close to a justice worker and a justice warrior and to know that we owe so much to those that paid such a great cost for the freedoms that we enjoy today. I have been working for the past several years on talking about what I call apocalyptic eschatology and developing a theology of positive prophetic expectation. And it is rooted in my experience as a Pentecostal coming along. I have shared before, and I want to share again, that we lived for the second coming. One of the reasons that we were not often politically engaged in this and that was because Jesus was really coming on Friday. And it was pointless for us to spend a lot of time engaged in the work of justice or in the work of voting. Everything was about getting ready for the coming of the Lord. That was Pentecostalism. That was, in some ways, Southern Methabapticostalism. That was my experience. And it goes back historically, so let me share a bit. In the Middle Ages, the plague that was called the Black Death was then thought to be the greatest biological disaster of human history. Some said it was the end of the world. In the beginning of the 14th century, phenomenal prosperity existed, strong churches, strong kings, strong crops, strong trade, strong cities. Industry had existed comfortably for four centuries. And global climate patterns suddenly shifted. Crops failed. Temperatures fell, and then the year 1314, when it comes in in the midst of all this chaos, wars broke out everywhere. People were convinced, of course, that they were experiencing the four horses of the apocalypse, those horses. I'll talk to you more about them momentarily. People began to criticize the church as the papacy became filled with political ambition and graft. And in the midst of all of this, there were dead frogs, unexplained hail, 
unexplained thunder and lightning. There were Mongol hordes, and with them came the Black Death. As they moved the infested loot of their conquest, and the Mongols catapulted their dead into the walled cities of their enemies, they spread the disease with intention so that folks would catch it and die. Before anyone knew, by the way, that rats were the principal purveyors of the bubonic plague, they were mired in a fog of superstition and ignorance, and it was fueled by fear and greed, and the poor died in the crowded cities as the rich moved to their country estates. And the rich thought that they were favored by God because they didn't die as often and as much because they weren't able to determine that folks in the crowded cities who were living on top of each other were more prone to find themselves infected. There was also the mnemonic plague, by the way, that needed no rats. It preyed on populations already weakened by sickness. Many thought that all curses flowed from a God who punished the world when the world sinned. Gabriella de Musis, 14th century Italian chronicler said, Almighty God saw that the entire human race was wallowing in the mire of manifold wickedness, enmeshed in wrongdoing, pursuing numberless vices, drowning in a sea of depravity because of limitless capacity for evil. And this was real for them, as it was an almost literal re reading of how disaster came to those who angered God in the Hebrew Bible. That is the way that God is often described in our reading of scripture. So they were right on point and right at home with the angry God of the Hebrew Bible. So in order to respond to God's vengeance, they resorted to an extraordinary penance designed to take away their sins. In their terror, they turned to zealots and fanatics called flagellants, which tickles me because that has another name, another meaning, <laughs> called flagellants. <laughs> flagellants, in its other definition, means though that those that beat themselves in a mockery, a mockery of Jesus' crucifixion that led to hysteria, persecution, and mass murder. The flagellants forsook baths and sex and sleep and food for 33 days at a time in memory of Jesus' 33 years of life on earth. Some say it was a statement of hopeless people who thought they would not survive anyway. And people flocked to the flagellants in droves. Hopeless people, by the way, do hopeless things. Basically, their mantra was, we need to get the sin out of the country, and it's going to take a real significant effort to do that. And then they began a witch hunt for sinners to blame. And laws were enacted against gambling, cussing, and prostitution. And the flagellants attacked the church for its uselessness against the plague. They blamed the plague on noxious vapors or miasma, which was caused by toxins, they said, that were planted by the Jews in their wells, which gave them freedom and ability to capture, torture, and burn Jewish men and Jewish women, often alive, in order to get favor from God. Their fear and their guilt and their sickness made them feel that they needed scapegoats, someone to blame, and it became an excuse to destroy folks they already hated anyway. And you would think that we would have learned from a time of so much sickness and fear and death and destruction, but not so. Because the cholera epidemic hit in 1832, 1838, 1849, 1852, 1854, the cholera epidemic came, went away, came back, went away all over the world. And the cholera epidemic, epidemic actually spawned revivals 
and condemnation of the poor and immigrants. And in fact, these revivals are actually the underpinning and the history of the Welsh revivals that were the beginning of evangelical Christianity. Started with cholera. Until somebody figured out that cholera was due to dirty water. Quote, it was fear of the terrible disease which in 1849 provoked people to seek God for God's covering, God's protection and God's salvation. The result was that what had come to be known as the cholera revival, and this was of 1849, tens of thousands were added to the church. Fear is an amazing thing in terms of what runs people to religion. The cholera revival of 1849 saw tens of thousands of people added to the church in a few months. One of the most impacting revivals ever to hit Wales. In fact, it was poor Irish immigrants, most of whom recently arrived in Wales, fleeing from their homeland, severely stricken by the potato famine, who bore the brunt of the blame for cholera. I did my DNA not long ago. Found out a goodly portion of me is Igbo from the west coast of Africa. There's a portion of me that is Cherokee from the diaspora of Texas moving, moving north from slavery. But like 12% is Irish Welsh. I said, Lord Jesus. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I found out. But when I thought about it, I said, everything I am was once in trouble somewhere with somebody. <laughs> Which speaks volumes <laughs> where I'm on my way with this. So much were the Irish held to blame for cholera that to many the disease came to be known as the Irish fever. It was felt by many that the conditions in which they often lived in the poorest part of Welsh towns created the ideal environment in which the cholera could flourish. Sadly, there seemed to be little understanding of the extremities that many Irish folks had to deal with, had to endure, or the depth of poverty in which many of them were forced by their Scottish and English folks. This is what forced them to survive in the deep ghettos once they arrived in Wales. But of course, someone, the preachers, his name was Thomas Rees, wrote in his article, The Christian Witness, it will be readily acknowledged that the terrible visitation of the cholera was principally the means of arousing the attention of our hearers to consider seriously the important truths with which they were already theoretically acquainted. But who will venture to deny that the Lord had mercifully ordained this scourge as a means of accomplishing God's purpose? Another writer simply said, many of the local inhabitants regarded the cholera epidemic as divine vengeance for public and private sins, and many sought the shelter and consolation of religion. William D. Wills, writing on the role of the rector in the middle of the outbreak, wrote, the visit of cholera in 1849 was a reminder to men in the coal field of their morality. And the Reverend John Griffin, in his nonconformist colleagues, regarded it as divinely inspired to fill the church and improve the moral and religious tone of community. And perhaps in the not too recent past, you can remember when we went from 1999 to the year 2000. Do you remember that we anticipated global shutdown? Planes dropping from the sky? complete failure of the power grid, and the message that the more current funda fundamentalist prophets were preaching at that time was of change of the millennium Armageddon. Something about moving from one millennium to another that's going to trigger Armageddon. I'm not exactly sure 
where they got it from, but they did preach it. They were truly convinced that we were living in the last days. They viewed and still view earthquakes, wars, rumors of war as signs of impending apocalyptic disaster. And the last great battle of Armageddon is approaching, they say. And we, this generation, many of them insist, is the last generation. Why does every generation <laughs> think they're the last generation? What is that? But it happens, I think, maybe because people are afraid to die. And they're just pretty sure that God is going to come get them, you understand, and snatch them away. But they believed at the turn of the millennium that that was about to happen. And they said all of this is foretold in the Old and New Testament where Jesus said, I tell you this, this present generation will live to see it all. They took Jesus literally, probably like the disciples did, because, you know, they stopped working <laughs> and kept watching. They say, it's been a week. He's not back. It's been two weeks. He's not back. <laughs> it's been six months. He's not back. Somebody got to go back to work because <laughs> he's not back. Many of Jesus' disciples believe that his admonitions applied to his own generation in the first century AD, it seems. And that prophecy did not come to pass for the early Christians. And now, well over 2,000 years have passed, but we were told by Pat Robinson, Hal Lindsey, David Koresh, Carol Camping, how am I doing? Edgar Wisenot, and all of the other evangelists that the generation referred to is ours. Even President Ronald Reagan was quoted as saying in 1980, you know, I turned back to the ancient prophets in the Old Testament and the signs foretelling Armageddon, and I find myself considering if we're the generation who will see this come about. I don't know if you've noted any of these prophecies lately, but believe me, they certainly describe the times we are going through, Ronald Reagan said, apocalypse. <laughs> I don't know who wrote that speech. <laughs> but it was probably somebody from the churches that I was raised in. <laughs> Family radio founder Harold Camping, who enjoyed a worldwide listening audience, promised the end of the world on May 21st, 2011. When it didn't happen, he recalibrated and said it would be in October. <laughs> on the same date, in October of the same year. He gained a national following as a Bible teacher and radio announcer. He founded it in 1959 and grew to more than 200 stations by 2009. He became controversial after his failed prediction that the world would end in 1994, and this when he moved to 2011. And thousands of devoted radio listeners heeded his warnings. Family radio was all over the world. They quit their jobs. They sold their homes. They used the money to promote the end of time, apocalypse. And remember the season of the rapture movies? Anybody remember that? The late great planet Earth. Tim LaHaye's very successful Left Behind. The series that follows suggests a real and present hunger for apocalypse. And in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, a bestseller in the United States in past decades, how Lindsay claimed that Armageddon is just around the corner, according to biblical prophecies and charts that go on the whole wall that tell you that it's getting ready to happen. Seven years of terrible tribulation will soon befall us. This period is about to begin because the Jewish people, after the long diaspora, have finally returned to the ancient homeland in Palestine, which they left after the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. And it is a genuine reality, we are told, because of the establishment of the State of Israel. Do I have it right? This is the way it was taught. Next, Hal Lindsey says, the Israelis will build the temple in Jerusalem, and then a whole series of cataclysmic events will trigger the final, final Armageddon, and a great war will ensue, and Israel will be invaded, and then there will be a confederacy of the north, <laughs> which is said to be the Russians and by the Arabs, and then there's the Chinese in there somewhere, and the great whore, and the horses of the apocalypse, 
in any way. The Antichrist will come whose name, it was Barack Obama. But anyway, all of this is going to happen. And these years will witness the great devastation that mankind has never seen, and the valleys will flow with blood, and the cities will be destroyed by fire, and, and all this is going to happen because women have lost their minds and think they can make decisions about their own bodies, and then there are the gays, those gays. God's going to blow it all up. And those gays will be a particular and principal reason for it happening. And then Christ will reign for a thousand years and establish his kingdom on earth. In a series of four new books that have suddenly swept the bestseller list, millions of people will disappear from the face of the earth, snatched from their homes and offices, automobiles and airplanes, all saved by the rapture, which has taken God-fearing Christians to heaven and the rest of humanity is left behind to suffer the trials and tribulations inflicted by Barack Obama, <laughs> the Antichrist. This is the plot of a fictionalized apocalyptic series. It's amazing to me. But I want to go just a little bit deeper tonight, leave something with you. It has raised an interesting phenomena in our country. Backyard bunkers and apocalyptic food products. Well, Jim Baker has an extensive online and television promotion to buy food to put in a bunker underground to get ready for the apocalypse. I haven't figured out what makes him think that your bunker or your food is going to survive the apocalypse. But people are buying it by the thousands and thousands of dollars. And so there was a question asked. The question was asked at Bob Jones University, a class that was getting ready to go to Muslim countries to preach Christ. And a reporter asked the question. He said, so why are you going? And they said, because of the imminent coming of Jesus, Maranatha, apocalypse, come Lord Jesus. So they were wearing the uniform, the clothing, the cultural head coverings, body coverings of Muslims and learning the language and getting ready to go preach Christ. They said, so tell me again why you're going. Because Jesus will not come until the gospel has been spread to the four corners of the earth. And then he asked the question, Again, so what happens if you don't make it and people don't hear the gospel? And then the teacher said, well, you'll only be held responsible for what you know of God. And so God will not condemn you for the gospel that you have not heard. And so we are responsible to spread the gospel. And then the reporter said, well, then why go? And then they cut away to something else. <laughs> I propose this. I propose that spiritual, peace-loving, hope-filled people of all faiths, lands and countries, should first enact and pursue an active campaign to change this predictable response from religion that comes at a time of crisis and is so incredibly fear-based. And this apocalyptic eschatology that lifts up an angry and vengeful God who rains down unprecedented, imminent destruction, particularly on those who are othered by the dominant culture and its religion, while simultaneously refusing to take responsibility at all to improve our situation. These are folks that instead choose and abuse a scapegoat. I think there has to be a shift in the message, but I want to go just a little bit deeper and say that we've come up now with a new brand of apocalyptic eschatology. We're experiencing a new brand of evil. Our current brand of apocalyptic eschatology has a certain exceptionalism attached to it. It makes a certain group of people believe it is not for them to be concerned about this apocalypse. 
And so the man in the bunker was asked the question, how do you think that you're going to survive the apocalypse? And he said, oh, there's going to be a remnant. An apocalyptic, a remnant of apocalyptic disaster. How does that happen? And the, ask, the person who asked the question asked the right question. Do you think God's going to blow up everything around you? And somehow your bunker and your Jimmy Baker food is going to last <laughs> and survive. If you get 500 guns and you pay more for your bunker than you did for your house, you will survive. He had a certain exceptionalism connected to him. Let me touch on it just a little bit. He said somehow or other he and his family would survive. Somebody said, why? Because we are the true people of God, not to be confused with the fake people of God. We are the true people of God. This group of people that believe that the apocalypse is not for them to be concerned about. In fact, some are preparing for the destruction of the present world, seeking to create a world that is paradise on earth. Now, I need for that to rest with you for a minute. They are working for and encouraging a destruction of the world as we know it, with it in their minds to create a world that for them is paradise on earth. They don't believe in global warming. As the God who favors them will adjust the planet when needed. They are amassing wealth and land and resources. They are very concerned about abortion, and, but not because of babies, because of the low birth rate of their women. And the concern that they have, that they are not going to populate the people who God's exceptional will will love. Not abortion in all communities. I have a Planned Parenthood right on the corner from my church. No one ever pickets ours at all. But in the communities that look like those who are concerned that they are somehow called to be exceptional, their unborn children matter. They believe that they are exceptional and that they are seeking essentially to wall the country in on all sides to separate us both politically and literally from the world and create an exceptionalist bunker mentality that says, by us, for us, and that's all. Our country, our lives, our children, and if you're at the border, you can't come in. And if you're within the border and we don't like you, we'll give you dirty water till you die. because we're not deeply concerned about that. And if we can't do anything else, we'll make just about who you are, not just what you do, but who you are will be illegal so that you will then be a slave again to the prison industrial complex. So if you're gonna stay, you got to be a slave. Does anybody understand me? Because manifest destiny speaks the heart of God, they say, and manifest destiny says, if I bring a gun and you bring a knife, it is the will of God that I rule over you. Seek to separate their children from the school systems and create special schools and then have the audacity to call them equal. When the reality of a certificate that allows a child who is extremely wealthy to go to a school of his or her choice is nothing like what happens in the ghetto when children have to go wherever school is free, which means that if they cannot get what it is that they need, they get a substandard education. So here's my word to the students here and friends here who are born for such a time as this. I'm a Pentecostal. Let me say it again. And I believe in the spirit of God. And I want to say to you, my beloved, God sent you from eternity into time. You preexisted your earthly experience. I believe that God knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. 
And I believe that we are eternal beings on a work visa. Here to do what we are called to do. And Maladoma Somme said, you don't have to spend your life looking for what you're called to do. You just have to remember. Because you came here on assignment. And if God sent us from eternity into time for such a time as this, then we have a call to contribute to the future. And why do I believe that we are here for such a time as this? Because this pattern of apocalyptic es eschatology did not start in the current environment. But what has made the current environment so exceptional is that these are folks that are not waiting <laughs> for a great big bang to come. They are believing that they are exceptional to the point that they are the Big Bang. And everything around us is substandard. There is no equality when you think you're God. That is the time that we are in. You can do what you want to. You can say what you want to. You can hurt who you want to. You can destroy who you want to. And you'll never have to pay the price. Exceptionalism. Why do I say we're born for such a time as this? In my reading and study, I have found out that the earth was likely, or the earth has likely experienced what's called five great extinctions. Has anyone ever heard that? Five great extinctions. One is called the Ogdorvian extinction, where small marine animals died out, and that was about 440 million years ago. One was called the Devonian extinction, where tropical marine species went extinct 365 million years ago. One was called the Permian-Triassic, the largest mass extinction in Earth's history, and it affected a large range of species, including many vertebrates, and that was 250 million years ago. One was called the Triassic-Jurassic, we know that one. The extinction of other vertebrate species on land and it allowed the dinosaurs to flourish 210 million years ago. And then 65 million years ago, what was called the Cretaceous. 65 million years ago was a mass extinction. Something unusual happened to our planet it's in the fossil record. Fossils that are abundant in early rock layers are not present at all. 65 million years until now. A wide range of animals, plants suddenly died out, suddenly, from tiny marine organisms to large dinosaurs. 65 million years ago, it wiped out 50% of the plants, and the event was so striking that it signaled a huge turning point in Earth's history making the end of the geologic period known as Crustaceous, making that end so powerful that 99.9% of all species that exist now, 99.9% rather of all species that existed before now have been destroyed which suggests we are point one. I need, I need that to, I need you to think about what I'm saying. And if I was in my home church, I'd say, turn to your neighbor and tell you, you point one. <laughs> point one, point one, you're point one. Everything else that has existed before us is extinct. We are point one. It, a species goes extinct all the time, but 99.9% .9 of all species of plants and animals that have ever lived, if they are now extinct, then 0.1% is what we're a part of. I need that to rest with you for a minute. 0.1. That suggests that God made us for such a time as this. And everything that happened, hey, hallelujah, I had a moment. Everything that happened before now was to lead up to now. We must have an awesome responsibility, something different than everything that pre-existed us. 
We must have been called out of eternity into time on assignment. In the demise of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, you've seen Jurassic Park. And the demise of all of those animals suggested also a major change in environment. And somebody said, what happened to cause this widespread devastation 65 million years ago? And scientists agree that a species can go extinct because of a range of difficult situations. The extinction of many species around the world came at one time or another, but it, this one in particular, 65 million years ago, was the largest scale change in global history. Hmm. And to explain what caused this extinction, some folks have said it was focused on events that would have altered the planet's climate in powerful ways. Leading theory is that a huge asteroid or comet slammed into the Earth and blocked the sunlight and changed the climate and set off global wildfires. But re researchers have also been able to investigate other forces. Massive volcanic eruptions from under the Earth, where the magma is as hot as the surface of the sun. Changes in sea levels all contributed to a general environmental decline. But we are the 0.1% that survived, chosen for such a time as this. And it is time for a comet-sized reformation. Now, this is what will get me in trouble, and you may not invite me back. That's what the folks used to say all the time. You may not invite me back. But I have a, a round-trip ticket, <laughs> and I can get home. I think that we who name the name of God, name the name of Christ, name our reality with spirit, however we see the divine and all of the divine's magnificent manifestations, we are the ones who are called to bring a comet-sized reformation, a fresh canon. Look out now. And I'll say it and keep saying it. We made our greatest mistake when we put a back cover on the book, as though God is not still speaking. We are the generation that will need to tear the back cover off the book and stop defending what we no longer believe. Because it's a wicked thing to keep preaching something that you no longer believe. It's time to give up empty practices. People say, well, why do you do it? We don't know. Why do we keep doing it? We don't know. We've just always done it. Do you enjoy it? No. Is it helping anybody? No. But it's the way we've always done it. Why are you wearing that? I don't know. Why are you lighting that? I don't know. I just don't know. Why did you build your building like that? I don't know. When did we start having church theater style? Who came up with that? I don't know. Who knows? What happened to community? I don't know. When did we get to having church's big business? I don't know. When did we start choreographing? I don't know. I don't know, but all I know is that we need a comet-sized reformation to move away from fear-based religion and move to a place where we understand we were definitively called by God for such a time as this. And to speak back into this exceptionalism, because we right now, often, as the Christian church, and I'll say it clearly, particularly the mainstream, pop-culturally, evangelical Christian church is abdicating its moral authority in this time. Because you can't get in bed with a despot and wake up clean. It doesn't work that way. Fresh cannon. Tear the back off the book. Let's get us a council at Princeton. Sit down and pick some more epistles. Yeah. Glory to God. Because God is still speaking. God is still speaking. It's time for us to make our evolutionary theological practice 
consistent with the way God has evolved us. I'm glad to stand in the aura of Mother Hall because being able to be a woman clergy person when somebody said that you can't be yes. is that reality of what happens when justice really does run down like water. And all of the justice movements, whether it was the justice movement for workers, the justice movements for women, the justice movements for people of color, for people who were moving from chattel slavery to peonage and from peonage through Jim Crow and from Jim Crow to the prison industrial complex. No matter what, the justice movement. There was always a scripture, come on now, that somebody could read to tell you that God wanted you to stay where you were and not become. And the only way we got there is we had to leapfrog over what it said and decide that what Howard Thurman's grandmother said. I'm not gonna be a slave. You are, you old fool. No, I'm not. I tore that page out of the Bible. I'm just not going to do it because I know who I am and I know whose I am. It's time. Give up empty practices. We are travelers on a living planet. We are bearers of a living spirit. We are God's fresh wind, hallelujah, for such a time as this. And my question to you, my real question to you, is does your practice, your praxis, your belief, your plans for ministry, your intent, what you hope to do with the education that you get and that you give, what you hope to do with it, will it bring light and life, hallelujah. Will it bring help? Will it be wholeness? Can we speak back what is the heart of God if there is nothing to read? Not what did you read, but what do you know? Yes. What is your knowing? Where does your knowing come from? And if your knowing is deep and your knowing is powerful, then your knowing can speak back to religion. It can speak back to text, it can speak back to practice, it can speak back to wickedness done in the name of God. And we have in our hands the wherewithal to set right the message of an angry God. God bless you is my prayer.